Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 91 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Trapodi. Joining me, as always, is Tony Pauline, as we are officially through seven weeks of the 2019 college football season. Tony's going to be podcasting through a little bit of pain tonight after undergoing knee surgery early this afternoon, and I'm fresh off seeing a specialist for an ankle and foot injury, so what's the lesson here to all our listeners? Don't run since that's how we've both found ourselves in this spot. Yep, no injured reserve for me, um, that's for sure. Uh, this is actually my third leg or knee surgery in the past 12 years. I mean, all that training I did for the Olympic decathlon, you know, uh, X number of years ago, a couple decades ago, is really starting to catch up uh, with me. And like you said, you know, you run, I'm an avid runner. In fact, people who see me at the Shrine Game and Senior Bowl also see me out on the roads running before practice, as you do. Um, but, you know, like when the doctor says, you know, you got you to stop running, you, sh- you should tail off. I say, listen, if I didn't run, I'd be a chain smoker. I'd drink too much. I'd gamble too much or I'd do something other. So the running is as much for uh, mental fitness as it is for physical fitness. But there obviously are their drawbacks. And the drawback was the hour plus knee surgery that I had uh, a few hours ago. As you all just heard, Tony's only addiction is not college football and football in general also just has that running bug. I mean, you run seven days a week, which I, that's just, that's crazy to me. Even people I think who are training for marathons or whatever it is, they even take some days off. It is an absolute addiction. Like you said, I, I mean, it's a sort of situation where uh, if you don't run just mentally, you, you know, you don't feel uh, like the day has started or that you're missing out. And I was even talking with the surgeon today, you know, he's like, listen, don't, don't go out there and run next week. Just, just take a little time off. So Maybe I'll do uh, some long, hard walking uh, rather than the running because uh, got to let this heal up. But eh, it is what it is, right? And, and the fact is this. It was, it was meniscus. It was some ligaments. It was arthritis. And in a month and a half, I'll be running better than I was the past uh, six months. So that, that's the good thing to look forward to. Maybe you should have gotten the surgery 30 years ago when you were training. Maybe, but I didn't have a torn meniscus then. And the arthritis was uh, just developing. So, uh, you know, I, I, hey, listen. I know people who in their forties have had to have knee replacements and the doctor said, you know, the way it looks, there's no necessity for that, which was, was a, uh, which was major, which was a relief. I mean, my own mother has had both of her knees replaced. So uh, you can see where that's heading. Yeah. And we'll see where this podcast is heading right here. We did have a bunch of interesting games within the top five of the rankings this week. We previewed Clemson FSU last week, that game turned into a blowout, but Alabama beat number 24, Texas A&M. Number three, Georgia in the big shakeup of the week, lost to South Carolina in overtime, or double overtime rather, in Athens. Just a brutal loss for the Bulldogs. Number five, LSU outlasted number seven, Florida. But we're going to head here to South Bend, the battle for the Jules Chalele between USC and Notre Dame. The Irish ended up winning 30-27, to and a big reason for that victory is they more or less shut down USC's wide receivers besides slot wideout Amon Ross St. Brown. Michael Pittman had four catches for 29 yards. Tyler Vaughn's four receptions for 47 yards and a touchdown. Those lines were way worse before the fourth quarter. The first four catches for that duo in the first three quarters of the game were all screen passes. They didn't have any other receptions. 
until that final quarter. They were both big parts of the drive that cut Notre Dame's lead to 23-20, which ended in a Tyler Vaughn's touchdown catch where Troy Pride Jr. didn't get his head around in time to defend the flag. But for the most part, Pride, Dante Vaughn, and the Notre Dame secondary really put the clamps down on Pittman and Vaughn's, especially the 6'3 Vaughn neutralizing Pittman's size. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I like Troy Pride, the cornerback from Notre Dame. I thought coming into the season he was a possible late first-round choice. But I, I think you saw the difference there. And if you watch the game, you watch the broadcast, Doug Flutie also sort of mentioned this. You know, Pittman, as we've spoken about, he has some huge games, and he looks great at times. But he struggles getting that natural separation. He's not a fast or quick guy, and he really relies on physically beating out defensive backs. And when he can't do that, his game suffers. I was relatively impressed with Tyler Vaughn's because he has that route running ability. He has that quickness to get separation from defensive backs. And something Doug Flutie said during the broadcast was, you know, everyone talks about Pittman, but when you talk to the USC defensive backs, they say that Tyler Vaughn's is the tougher of the two to guard and practice because he's such a good route runner because he gets such great quickness and separation through the routes, it's tough to get a break on the ball. Where with Michael Pittman, it's more a jump ball and timing your, your, your vertical leap to defend the pass. So that is really what stuck out to me because that's something that we spoke about in August. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of love out there for Michael Pittman, and I understand because he makes a lot of the plays that you see on the highlight reels, and, and sometimes he's got some exceptional numbers. But I really think that Tyler Vaughn's, because of his natural quickness, because of the better speed, because of the ability to separate, is the better pro prospect at the next level. And I know some people are shaking their heads, but again, you know, look at what, we, what we've seen with the Alan Lazards, with the Hakeem Butlers, uh, with the little Jordan Humphreys, you know, big physically imposing receivers who look good on Saturday, but just can't translate those skills to dominance on Sunday. It is funny you mentioned Alan Lazard because we just watched him on Monday Night Football go off, have a big fourth quarter touchdown and start to kind of earn the trust of Aaron Rodgers. But when Flutie did say that, I thought the same exact thing as you because I remember when we were talking in our preview, most people, probably 80 to 90% of people, seem to like Pittman over Vaughn's. You had Vaughn's ranked higher than Pittman. We discussed why. And in the end, Vaughn's is a guy who also can win on back shoulder throws. He has a solid vertical leap. He can win in the air. So he has some of the traits that Pittman has, maybe not quite at the same dominant level that Pittman does, but the traits that Pittman doesn't have, Vaughn's has in spades. So he's more or less just a more complete receiver, which is what Flutie was saying about what his teammates were talking about during practice. And that's the receivers that play at the next level, the guys who can win out because they can get natural separation due to their speed and their quickness and their route running skills, not the guys who, you know, can win out solely on the contested pass. Got to say one other thing. I was relatively impressed with the USC offensive line. I know that Austin Jackson, the left tackle, had not been having a good season. I thought he held up pretty well against what is a terrific uh, set of defensive ends and pass rushers uh, on the Notre Dame defense. He wasn't great, but Compared to how he had been playing, I thought Austin Jackson of USC, the left tackle, really held up well in this game. Now, another passing game matchup that we previewed last week was Rhode Island wide receiver Aaron Parker, guy who's been garnering some hype in the scouting community, against Virginia Tech and cornerback Caleb Farley. The Hokies won this game 34-17. To nobody's surprise, that was very much expected. We didn't really see much Parker versus Farley, though. Farley stuck mostly to the left boundary. Parker was usually in the slot. Even with that, Isaiah Coulter was the receiver who had the big day. 
for the Rams, nine catches for 152 yards, despite seeing more of Farley at times. Over the last four weeks, Coulter has more catches and yards than Parker. He has three touchdowns compared to four for Parker. Tony, what do you see from the receivers of Rhode Island in this one? Yeah, and that, you know that's how outs find a lot of these guys on the small schools. Aaron Parker comes into the season. He's graded as a priority free agent just outside of draftable range by scouts. So you get a lot of scouts out there to watch Aaron Parker. And then Isaiah Coulter has a good uh, has has a really good uh, year. Uh, that's what happened. A uh, good game, I should say. Uh, that's what happened with O'Shane Zemenis last year. I mean, they were out in 2017 watching another defensive end, but it was O'Shane Zemenis of Old Dominion, the pass rusher, who really stood out week after week after week. So he gets on the scouting radar. That is how Isaiah Coulter gets on the scouting radar. I thought uh, Aaron Parker played well. I mean, if the ball wasn't going to Coulter, it was going to Parker. They both played relatively well in a game that really for Rhode Island – kept pretty close against Virginia Tech because you would think uh, Virginia Tech would have blown them out, especially with the with the number of points they put up against Miami and the number of turnovers they had against Miami. You know, Sleb Farley at his top is an outstanding, game-breaking cornerback who has the ability to make a lot of interceptions, but he's very inconsistent, as we saw against Rhode Island. His play, he does not consistently play at a high level, and he really needs to polish off some of the rough edges of his game. He's got the fundamental skills to potentially develop into a top 60 pick and maybe a starter at the next level, but he's a long way from that, as we saw against Rhode Island. I thought it was a good game for both Coulter and Parker. And really, uh, you know, what, uh, what Isaiah Coulter did was he established himself that moving forward, when scouts get ready for the 2021 season and do their scouting, if he has a good junior timing day, he's a guy who probably is going to be rated higher than Aaron Parker, who was graded just outside of draftable range coming into the season. Yeah, this really wasn't Farley's best effort. Had a couple issues, obviously didn't cover Coulter on a lot of situations, had a pass interference where he didn't get his head around. But as you said, he's still young. There's some development and some refinement to do in his game before he's going to develop into that potential day two player. But I agree with you on Parker, even though the stats weren't huge. He did play pretty well. Sharp route breaks, has some nice hesitation there. He's got really strong hands, adjusts to the ball, a lot of contorted positions that he's put in where he makes plays. But he's not the athlete that Coulter seems to be. Great speed, gains extra yardage on the short passes, also does show the ability to get extension on passes off his frame in the air, behind him, in front of him. Had a few struggles with press and physicality, but that's to be expected. As you mentioned, he's young. He's a bit leaner than Parker, even though they're similar heights. And that speed factor is going to play a part. You mentioned junior timing day. If he does run well and shows that the athleticism on film matches what you're going to see at the combine or in a time drill, that's going to really help his draft side. You know, Parker is what he is. He's a very, for the most part, dependable pass catcher who's a solid route runner who's a good possession receiver, does a good job on the underneath routes, shows good awareness, knows where the sticks are on third down, has been a good uh, red zone target, and is probably going to be asked to return punts at the next level, which will make or break his opportunity to uh, make the final cut and get onto a, uh, an active roster at the next level. Now, our last Week 7 review is Penn State and Iowa, a 17-12 win for the Nittany Lions. Now, the matchup to watch in this game that we previewed leading in was defensive end Yatur Gross Matos against right tackle Tristan Wurst. But in the end, Gross Matos mostly face off against left tackle Alaric Jackson, lined up inside a bunch too. 
no sacks for him in this game, but he did flash his easy speed off the edge. A lot of good bursts through gaps when he was lined up inside. And honestly, when we're talking about the Iowa tackles, Jackson fared better against him and overall in the game than Wurfs did. Now, Wurfs is a guy he's tough to beat when he gets his hands on you, but he's not a great athlete. He's a bit susceptible to quick inside moves. Struggled at times with redshirt freshman backup defensive end Jason Owe of Penn State, and that was often when Gross Matos was off the field, whereas Jackson did a nice job keeping Gross Matos off his frame with good extension. He slides quickly to the edge, rides rushers past the pocket. After I was impressed with Worfs last week, and we both spoke about how he was moving up in the eyes of our board against Michigan and Josh Uche, I came away disappointed after this one. Yeah, I think part of the problem was Iowa was always playing from behind. I think Nate Stanley, the quarterback, uh, who was a slider two weeks ago on my article at, at Pro Football Network, had another poor game, missed a lot of opportunities. And, and I think that worse just does not have the agility that his uh, teammate, Alaric Jackson, uh, has. You know, as we said in our preview, gro- whether it be Gross Matos or, or, or anybody, the the uh, quick, explosive, speedy edge rushers, the guys that can take wide angles, the guy that guys that could really uh, change direction on a dime, are the ones that are going to give worse the biggest problems. Now it wasn't a total loss for worse, but you have you see that at times he just seems a little bit stiff. He seems like he struggles to adjust. Uh, he's good when he's in motion, but sometimes when he's stationary, that seems to be a problem. And that's something he's going to have to correct if he can. And it's going to be a conversation talking point for NFL scouts. Now, you mentioned Nate Stanley. And and this is a guy that a lot of people like Nate Stanley. A lot of people talked about him as a potential top 100 pick. And when you watch him, I mean, he's a guy with an average arm. His ball placement and accuracy is just generally inconsistent. He's not particularly mobile. I mean, there are some good moments and there are times where he just will drop a dime in the intermediate field. He's very capable of doing it, but you just don't see it down in and down out from him. And for a guy who's been starting as long as he has, it's really something where he leaves you wanting more. You know, you're preaching to the choir on this one because one of the first conferences we reviewed over the summer was uh, the Big 12, the Big 10. And and Iowa was in part one of our Big 10 uh, preview. And, and I would recommend that people go back to listen and listen to what I said. You know, there were some scouts that great Nate Stanley as a third rounder. I had him as a six rounder specifically because of what you said. And if you follow our college game day uh, blog at Pro Football Network, which I would suggest everyone does, Stanley missed an awful pass where he threw behind the receiver for what would have been a touchdown for Iowa. And I said, you know, once again, this is Nate Stanley where the receiver has inside leverage or inside positioning on the defender or they have a step and he does not hit the receiver in stride. He throws behind the receiver. Oftentimes he throws high of the receiver and the receiver then has to adjust or leave their feet or get vertical. In this uh, instance, it was a situation where the receiver had to adjust backwards to uh, grab the throw and it led to a loss of opportunity. The thing is, this is happens all the time with Nate Stanley. It's happened all the time for the past couple of years, which is why I never understood the early ranking, or even the love for Nate Stanley. Does he have upside potential? Yes, but he really has to improve his consistent accuracy and his pass placement. And what I'm talking about is completely different from statistical accuracy. Like I said, it's putting the ball in front of receivers so they can run to the ball, so they can make the reception in stride, so they can pick up yardage, running after the catch. 
but you don't see that from Stanley. You, you see errant throws where receivers have to adjust and grab errant passes, which leads to a loss of opportunity, as we saw Saturday night against Penn State for what should have been a short touchdown for the Hawkeyes. And it's not just that, because we talk often about leading receivers into yards after catch and allowing them to really make plays beyond just hitting them in the numbers and watching them fall down. Nate Stanley doesn't even do that. I mean, you mentioned receivers when they have inside leverage, he's throwing the ball outside. When they have an opening on the outside, he's throwing the ball to the inside of the field, which something like that is going to lead to lots of turnovers at the next level. But it's not just basic ball placement and things where he's not leading receivers and he's making them slow down and, and work hard. He's making them pretty much completely go off their route that they're already on. And that's just not going to fly, even at the college level, which we've seen in a lot of Iowa struggles. It's just not that it's not going to fly. Sometimes it's something that's not coachable. And oftentimes it's something, you know, that cannot be fixed, which has got to raise a red flag. I'm sure Nate Stanley will get an invitation to the senior bowl and we'll either see more of the same or we'll see a situation where he looks better. And that will be the determining factor uh, as to where he lands in the draft, because if he's missing passes wildly and he's not hitting guys in those one-on-one -on -one situations, or even when he's throwing against air, as we saw years ago with Taj Boyd, when I said that Taj Boyd was undraftable and the Clemson fans wanted to come and burn my house down, he ended up going in the sixth round as, a, as Rex Ryan was doing a favor to his son, but never uh, played during the active season in the NFL. It will come down to Nate Stanley's performance at the Senior Bowl when he's asked to make NFL passes. And if he's doing much of the same, he's going to fall deep into the draft. Absolutely. And we've also got some news for you this week beyond just our reviews. And before we look ahead to the weekend and week eight schedule, we're going to start, though, with a tough update out of Eugene. Tight end Jake Breland, who we discussed a few shows ago, suffered a season ending left knee injury against Colorado. And it was in the first quarter. He was already up to three catches for 53 yards and one touchdown in that quarter. Really a good performance. He was on his way to a monster game. Then he gets hurt. Not just this game, though. Greenland was really breaking out this year as a whole, keeping Justin Herbert's brother, a five-star recruit, at the position, glued to the bench. So this injury is really a shame for Greenland. Yeah, it is. And as I said over Pro Football Network, uh, Breland was rising up draft boards faster than any other senior tight end in the nation. There's no doubt about it. Now, I'm told there's been no official word, but people around the, close to the situation know what's happening. Tell me it's a torn ACL. So it's going to be several months. Right now, I, I guess the good thing is it happened in the middle of October. I doubt this guy's going to work out or run at the combine. Maybe he gets some sort of workout in before uh, pro day workouts and right before the uh, draft. The good news is people tell me that the way Breland has played and played so well during the first half of the season, that some team is going to draft him late and will probably redshirt him in 2020 as a rookie to help get him healthy for 2021. So while it's really a, a, a tough injury and a good news, bad news sort of situation, the good news is, is Breland has done enough to date that warrants a late round pick and then stashing him on IR for 2020 to get him ready for 2021. And, you know, a lot of people say big deal. That's pretty good for Breland because NFL scouts had graded him as a free agent coming into the season. He received the type of grade that he was going to get an invite to a rookie minicamp, and he would have never made it past the 80-man roster. And now we're going to move on here to 
our hometown New York Jets who have been in the news all year for different reasons. Sam Darnold got mono. Luke Falk was absolutely abhorrent in his place. I don't think that's even the right adjective for it. There's probably a word that describes worse. That was once Trevor Simeon broke his ankle, filling in for Darnold. Darnold finally returned last week, led the team to a win over Dallas. So finally, there are some positive vibes around the team. Tony, yesterday you broke some news that the Jets signed defensive back Blake Countess. They cut Arthur Millette in a corresponding move. They also put Kalechi Osamelli on IR, and supposedly he was kind of on the outs of the starting lineup anyway. Alex Lewis was potentially going to take over his job. Now, obviously, on this podcast, since the Mike McCagnan report, we've kind of been on the cutting edge of some Jets news. Tony, what's the latest you're hearing from Florham Park? I spoke with a number of people about the present situation with the Jets, and they tell me that while they feel that Joe Douglas, the new general manager, has some deficiencies – and who doesn't have deficiencies when you compare him to his former boss, Harry Roseman of the Philadelphia Eagles. They believe that Douglas is putting the proper pieces and the proper people in place from a football perspective to turn the Jets around in a few seasons. Now, I say football perspective, people will laugh because, you know, as most know, being a general manager for an NFL franchise is more than scouting and free agent signings. So people feel comfortable and they feel good about what Joe Douglas is doing from the football side of things with the New York Jets. The big question has got to be, will Adam Gase be one of those football pieces moving forward after the season? And that's a question I've asked just to see what the reaction would be. No one has any answer right now. No one has any idea as to which way uh, Douglas may be leaning towards Gase. And that's completely understandable because it's too premature at this point in time really to make any sort of decision or uh, have any sort of leaning, especially coming off the Jets victory over the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday. Yeah, and I mean, there's been lots of people that when Luke Falk was starting were complaining and really wanting Coach Gase's head because he wasn't putting together a creative enough offense where Luke Falk could do something. Well, newsflash, neither of us were fans of the Adam Gase hire, but I refuse to judge him on what he did with Luke Falk as his quarterback. I mean, the guy went from being a free agent to being signed as a backup, then being a starter, and then the Jets cut him and kept David Fales as the backup a week after he started. So that tells you all you need to know about Luke Falk. I don't care who the coach is. If that's your quarterback and he's got deer in headlights and he's not responding to pressure and there's just no internal clock in his head, there's not much you can do. I told those people, listen, if Adam Gase comes out and puts together a really listless first quarter or first half with Sam Darnold against Dallas, I will turn on him quickly and I have no problem doing that. But that's not what happened. He actually showed that this offense can have some life, so maybe there is a future for Adam Gase, even after the tough start to the season. Well, we'll have to see what happens moving forward. We'll have to see if they can build on this uh, win against the Dallas Cowboys, which, to their credit, especially offensively, you know, was a good win and was really good four quarters of play by the New York Jets. But I'll tell you this, I was shocked at how awful I thought the Dallas Cowboys looked. I mean, the quarterback is not good. Uh, after Amari Cooper, who wasn't on the field, their receivers are not good. They've got no pass rush. Their secondary is terrible. You know, I expected to see a, a good competitive Dallas Cowboy team on the field. I saw nothing of the sort. So that, that's not to take anything away from the Jets because they played very well. Let's see how they can, you know, how they build on this. Obviously, they got the New England Patriots uh, Monday night. But my biggest takeaway uh, from that game was just how bad the Dallas Cowboys were or are. We'll have to see as far as they're concerned moving forward as well. 
Yeah, I mean, they got off to a hot start to the season. Tyron Smith got hurt. They lost their other tackle as well. And since that has happened, Dak Prescott really hasn't looked that good. Obviously, Amari Cooper goes down. Michael Gallup had, I think, three or four drops as the lead option. Really wasn't the kind of guy that could handle all the attention from an opposing secondary that Cooper does. So it will be interesting to watch them moving forward because three weeks into the season, they were 3-0, had some easy matchups, and people were all over them. Now people are all over them in the complete opposite direction. And Gallup's drops were bad drops. It wasn't like he was uh, in stride running full speed. I mean, he was stationary a couple times. He was in the air, and the ball was just whizzing through his hands. I mean, they were just, you know, pedestrian type of uh, drop passes. Absolutely. And shocking for a guy who's had a good season so far. But we'll see if if he can bounce back and just the Cowboys as a whole. We are going to bounce back ourselves to the college gridiron now. We've talked about the Utah secondary on multiple occasions on this show. And Tony, you're hearing some breaking news on one of their underclassmen. People are telling you that cornerback Jalen Johnson is expected to enter the draft. You have him graded as a last day pick. What other projections are you hearing among the scouting community? There are some who've told me that they believe he can be a second day selection. He's got excellent size. He's a good athlete. He's a physical player. Um, But in my opinion, he is more athlete than he is cornerback at this point he's a guy who needs a lot of work on his ball skills for him to really make the move into the top 90 selections or at least between selections say 45 and 90 in the NFL draft he's a guy that's got a lot of upside he's not played well this season in fact the entire Utah secondary which was highly touted coming into the season has not played well I'm hearing from a number of people that he's very likely to enter the draft or at least he's giving the impression now that after the season's over, he's going to make the move to the next level. I still think he's more of a fifth-round pick. Uh, there's still a lot of football left, and it's not just Jalen Johnson. It's that entire Utah Ute secondary. Uh, they're going to have to all turn it around, especially Johnson, if he does enter the draft and he expects to be you know, an earlier selection, a top three-round or top four-round selection. Now, we'll get to our Week 8 previews in just a moment, but before we do – Please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcasts to get in touch. Now, Arizona State wide receiver Brandon Ayuk is coming off a huge week. Seven catches, 196 yards, three touchdowns, and a 38-34 win over Washington State. The first game he's had some big plays in since the team's first two against some inferior competition in Kent State and Sacramento State. Now he's going to get that challenge against the Utah secondary that we just discussed. Should see a lot of the aforementioned Jalen Johnson, maybe some Javelin Guidry as well, although Guidry gives up four inches to Ayuk. Julian Blackman should help out over the top at safety as well. Tony, you mentioned the struggles of the Ute secondary. Ayuk has had a really nice season. What do you expect to see in this game? Well, I expect to see an Arizona State team that's prepared to play because Herm Edwards always has them ready to play once they hit the field. You know, Io came into the season graded as a last-round prospect by scouts. A lot of people feel he's moved into the middle rounds. He's a consistent guy. In a lot of ways, he's a lot like Aaron Parker of Rhode Island in the sense that he's not a real fast guy. He's not a vertical threat, but he's a terrific route runner who separates from opponents who, you know, catches the ball with proper fundamentals, extending his hands and snatching the pass away from him. 
his uh, draft ranking will depend on where, how fast he runs. You know, does, does he have enough speed to potentially be a third receiver, to be a slot receiver, or is he only a fourth or fifth receiver at the next level? Utah's got to get it back. The Utah's defensive backs have got to get it back in gear. They got to get the their game back on track. This is going to be a tough matchup because, like I said, you know that Arizona State's going to be ready to play. Iuk is headed in the right direction. He didn't have great production in the middle of the season, but he seems to have turned it on now. And he's not going to make mental mistakes where the Utah secondary at times have made a lot of mental mistakes this year. And Ike is a guy, once he catches the ball, the play's not over. I mean, he's quick into yards after the catch. He's pretty elusive with the ball in his hands. So if this secondary is going to see him catch the ball and think that they're just going to tackle him and bring the play down and end the play, that's not the case. They can't fall asleep once that play has started and once Ayuk has made a play because he could take a short pass and just take it to the house with his nifty after the catch ability. He's a smart, tough football player. He's more football player than he is athlete, which means that he's not going to go high in the draft. He doesn't have the great upside, but it also means that in the proper system, Ayuk can be a seven- to eight-year veteran at the next level. I'm sure he's, he's also going to be tried as a return specialist because that natural quickness uh, lends one to believe that he'll be, uh, he can do a good job returning punts. Absolutely. And we discussed Johnson here. ASU has its own underclassmen who may be leaning towards the draft. Tony, what are you hearing on running back Eno Benjamin? Literally as late as this afternoon when I spoke with people, they tell me that Eno Benjamin is entering the draft. One person told me he's definitely entering the draft. I don't want to say definite at this point. We're in the middle of October and things can happen. But all the signs point to Eno Benjamin entering the draft. Now, Coming into the season, there were some scouts that gave him a second-round grade. I was a little bit cooler on him. I mean, I like him as a ball carrier. I think he plays big, tough football, although he's a smaller guy. I also think he's got a a three-down game, but I think he's more of a situational uh, ball carrier at the next level. People I spoke with said he's more of a middle-round pick, uh, and that's where he'll likely go if he enters the draft. But I don't see, even if Eno Benjamin goes back and has a great year, there's going to be a big difference between Eno Benjamin, say, being a fourth round pick in the 2020 draft and Eno Benjamin being a second round pick in 2021. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it there. And this is kind of the case with running backs in general, where they are who they are, mostly by their freshman, sophomore season. So when you're draft eligible, it doesn't matter. You can't say, I'm going to go back for my senior year and improve my draft stock unless you're stuck behind somebody on the depth chart and you haven't gotten the opportunity to be the number one guy. Benjamin has had that opportunity. We know what he is. He's a smaller guy who runs hard, strong for his size, but he's not going to probably be able to run that way when he gets to the NFL level. does have some passing game chops, so he'll be a useful player. But going back for one more season, all it's going to do is put more tread on his tires rather than raise his stock. So it makes sense for him to strike while the iron's hot right now rather than waiting it out. Yeah, and you know going back, he's going to be the workhorse back for uh, Herm Edwards uh, with the Sun Devils because that's the way Herm Edwards likes to run his offense. And and as you said, you know, one more year in the college level is going to put a lot more tread on his tires. Now staying in the Pac-12, we'll go back to the well with USC again. This time they're hosting the other team from the state of Arizona in the Wildcats. Michael Pittman Jr. and Tyler Vaughns will look to bounce back against Arizona cornerback Jace Whitaker we also discussed a couple shows ago ahead of the Colorado game. Now, LaVisca Chenault didn't play in that game, so we didn't get to see Whitaker against Chenault. Now we get to see him against two NFL-caliber receivers. You would think he'd line up more against Michael Pittman, despite the size disadvantage, 5'11 against 6'4", about five-inch difference between the two, because in the end, he may be too slow to stick with Tyler Vaughn's. He's also been playing a bit more slot safety 
this season. If he continues to do that, we may see him more against Amon Ross St. Brown than either Pittman or Vaughn's. Either way, it should be a good test for Whitaker, who's hoping to get drafted, and a spot also for the USC guys to possibly bounce back after the loss to Notre Dame. You know, Whitaker's had a terrific season. He was highly thought of coming into the 2018 season. I believe he had an arm injury or a wrist injury, something like that, that kept him on the sidelines. It wasn't a lower extremity injury. He's played very well this year. He's got good ball skills. He's a good football player. But as you mentioned, the long speed is what is the concern. And with that long speed, he's a scheme-specific player. You may have to play him backed off the line of scrimmage. You may have to play him in his own type system. Uh, and he may be nothing more than a dime back at the next level, but he's very good at what he does. He's got good ball skills. He's constantly making positive plays on the ball. Uh, this year, he's got three interceptions in, in the team, six games, four pass breakups. He came out of the gate hot for a guy who sat on the sidelines for most of the 2018 season. So again, this is going to be one of the bigger tests uh, as far as you, you talked about his matchup against uh, Chenault. Well, now USC, as you said, has got three receivers that can catch the ball. So he's going to have to keep his head on a swivel. But still, I, I mean, Whitaker's playing well. I don't know that we're going to see him at the Senior Bowl. I think at the very least we'll see him at the Shrine Game. Uh, and he's headed in the right direction. Now we'll wrap up our looks ahead to Week 8 by heading to Starkville, where Mississippi State hosts red-hot LSU, who's up to number two in the polls this week. And there's a legitimate argument to be made that they should be number one the way they've played this season. Obviously, Joe Burrow is continuing his breakout season. His top two receivers lead the conference in yards per game. Justin Jefferson is coming off a season-high 10 grabs for 123 yards and one touchdown against Florida. Jamar Chase, not draft eligible, but really having a great season. Seven for 127-2 and two last week. And those numbers came against a great Gator secondary. Not the same level opponent this week, but the Bulldogs do have talent in the defensive backfield. Cornerback Cam Dantzler, safeties Jaquarius Landrews, and Bryant Cole. Dantzler is a guy, he has the size, he has the speed, and he has the ball skills to match up with either Jefferson or Chase. It's kind of a pick-your-poison type of deal, whichever one Dantzler may decide to follow. If they go that route, the other one is likely going to eat. Both of those guys are great athletes as are Dantzler and Landrews. So this should really be a fun game to watch, at least in the back seven. Well, at least when LSU has the ball in the back seven, because I don't think really this is going to be a game at all, because I don't see how Mississippi State's going to really be able to score uh, on that LSU defense, whose uh, secondary is really NFL worthy. You look at that uh, Tiger secondary, and the four guys that they line up as starters, as well as their nickelback, they would be starting in, in most NFL secondaries. But, you know, you make a good point. I mean, when you talk about Jefferson, one thing we know about LSU receivers, they usually turn out to be better pros than they are college players. And I think Jefferson is heading in that direction. And all three uh, Mississippi State guys that you mentioned have played very well. Uh, Landrews was a uh, junior college transfer. He showed flashes last year, struggled to get on the field because of the depth that Mississippi State had at the safety position. He's doing a solid job this year. I think he's definitely improved his game, 37 tackles. Uh, four passes broken up. Uh, you can see he's developing and he's progressing and he's turning from a good athlete into a solid football player. I'm told scouts are head over heels for Brian Cole, who was actually graded around later than Landrews coming into the season. Uh, Cole this year has got uh, 30 tackles, six and a half tackles for loss, one interception and two passes broken up. They like his uh, progress, but they also think he's probably a better football player uh, than Landrews. He's, does, he's not the athlete of Landrews, but he's a better football player. Danzler's a guy who I like a lot. We spoke about him during our SEC preview. 
He's somebody who I grade as a fourth round pick. He's uh, got excellent size, a fourth year junior, 6'1", goes about 185 pounds. There were some scouts who believed that Dantzler coming into the season was worthy of a, a top 42 choice. These are scouts who grade underclassmen or grade an occasional underclassmen. He was given a very high grade, so a lot was expected of him. I still think he needs a little bit more polish in his game, but if Danzler matches up against Jefferson on Saturday night, that is going to be a matchup to watch because, you know, both players seem to be heading in the right direction. Both players are thought highly of by NFL scouts, and both players seem to have bright futures for Sunday football. Absolutely. That'll be a fun matchup because both guys are kind of graded in that early day three, potential late day two range. And you talked about LSU receivers being better in the league. And a lot of that is because LSU really never has great quarterback play. Now you see this year what these athletes can do on the outside, on the inside, when they have a potential NFL prospect at the quarterback position, which is what Joe Burrow has done. I mean, if you look back at this season right now, go to Jacksonville, look at what DJ Shark is doing. This is a guy who never produced at the college level. He was just talent, and he had to really be coached up, and you had to really take that talent and make it into something because he wasn't able to translate it into production at the college level. Now that you're seeing these guys produce, in addition to their athletic ability and in addition to the success of LSU receivers at the NFL level, that's only going to help their stock. And this is the beginning of three very tough games for that LSU quarterback, Joe Burrows, that you talk about. A player a lot of people are head over heels on. I think they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves on. He did play very well against Florida. Had a, a sensational game. He's going to be in the talk for a Heisman Trophy candidacy. But let's be honest. I mean, his job was made a lot easier when Jonathan Grenard, the explosive pass rusher of the Gators, left the game early. Plays Mississippi State this week. Mississippi State's got a, a terrific defensive uh, secondary. Plays Auburn uh, the following week. Auburn's got a uh, terrific defense from front to center. And then they play, he plays Alabama two weeks after that. And that Alabama-LSU matchup has traditionally been a Saturday evening game. And we know about Alabama's defense. So I, I think these are three really big, important games for Joe Burrows, who's receiving a lot of accolades, justifiably so. Uh, people are talking about him as being a top 10 pick. I don't agree with that. I think, uh, like I said, let's see a, a little bit larger body of work. Let's see what he does, you know, from the here on out uh, through the end of the season, and especially these three games that are coming up. Yeah, and for people listening out there who are thinking, oh, maybe we're a bit too slow to Joe Burrow here because, you know, he's had such a great season. Listen, he has passed every test that you really could have thrown at him here. All he's done is beat the opponents that he's faced on the field and he's done it very well. I mean, he looks excellent. And this is coming from somebody who I was not very high on Joe Burrow entering the season, just thought he was going to actually hold this LSU team back when in fact, now he is a big part of the engine for their offense. So certainly I'm turning around on Joe Burrow, but like you said, it's been five or six games. Let's see things kind of build up a little bit here and let's see him continue to pass these tests because as we've seen at the NFL level this year, everyone wanted to crown Baker Mayfield after his rookie season. He was put in an excellent situation with a good offensive line, and he really thrived. Now this year, struggling against pressure, he's struggling when there isn't pressure on him. So it's not just the surrounding cast around Baker Mayfield, it's him as well. And people were very ready to crown him as the next big thing last season. This year, he's been passed by a couple other guys from his draft class. I mean, Sam Darnold looks really good. Lamar Jackson looks great. Josh Allen has had his share of moments and has definitely played better than Mayfield. So let's understand that a half-season sample size or even a full-season sample size 
in the game of football sometimes just isn't enough to evaluate a young player. Yeah, there's too much knee-jerk reaction. I mean, too many people watched that game, uh, the Utah State game against LSU, and automatically came off of Jordan Love based on what was, you know, three bad quarters of play. And really, to your point, Daniel Jones of the New York Giants, as we spoke about, I'm not going to beat this horse, is the epitome of that. I mean, people went from jumping off the cliff uh, back in April when the Giants selected him with the sixth selection to basically jumping for joy after two or three games. So, you know, there's got to be some body work. You know, you were not the only one who was not very high on Joe Burrow coming into the season. Scouts gave him a six-round grade. So they were of the same, you know, thought process. Credit to Burrow for putting it together. Credit to Burrow for taking his game to the next level. Credit to Burrow, who is now being talked about as a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate and is going to be talked about as a legitimate top 75 draft pick. But there's still a lot to be played out before we stamp these guys as very early picks. And that's it for the 91st episode of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. All of Tony's work now can be found over at profootballnetwork.com. So visit the site and check out some game previews over the next couple days, a live blog on Saturday, and weekly risers and sliders to come early next week after the games all play out. For Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.